32, Genesis chapter 32. Uh, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, that's on page 30 in the few Bibles provided. That's where we're going to be this morning. We have worked our way through most of the story of uh, Jacob. You remember we've got Abraham. We've been working in Genesis through the stories of the patriarchs. You know, we studied the primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11 with creation, the flood, and all the different things that go along with that. But then we saw that Genesis chapter 12 through Revelation 22 is ultimately about God's dealings with one family. Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters deals with all of humanity. But if you compare side by side, here is most of history, and here are God's dealings through the people of Abraham. You know, God is not interested in quantity. God's interested in quality. God's not uh, working to try to win a majority vote. God's working to accomplish his purposes. So God called a man named Abram up from Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, Abram, I need you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. You don't know anything about it, but you're going to leave your father, your father's house, and your countrymen, your country, and you are going to walk to a place that I'm going to take you, and I am going to make you like the sand of the seashore and like the stars of the sky. And uh, I'm going to bless you, you're going to have a son, and through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham goes along, and you remember, finally Abraham has the son of promise, Isaac. Abraham dies without inheriting the land that God promised him, but he still believes. Isaac comes, and Isaac goes and he wanders and has some different problems. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And of course, you'll remember the names of the Hebrew patriarchs are in alphabetical order. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, Jacob then is, Jacob means supplanter. Jacob means con man. Uh, Jacob throughout his entire life is always trying to get ahead. And his very name, you know, uh, from the very beginning, His brother Esau comes in one day after a long day's work, you remember. And he says, oh, I'm starving to death. And Jacob says, well, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you a bowl of red pottage in exchange for your birthright, in exchange for your share of the inheritance. And Esau says, okay, I'll do it. Goes a little farther, and Isaac lays on what he thinks is his deathbed. Isaac says, Esau, come to me. I'm going to give you the Abrahamic blessing. I'm going to pass on to you the right to dwell in the land, uh, the promise that all nations of the earth will be blessed through you and that your descendants will be as the sand of the seashore. But uh, his mother overhears the conversation. And Rebecca goes and catches Jacob, her favorite, and says to Jacob, here, I want you to dress up like your brother. And your father won't be able to see. He's half blind. And you're going to go in there, pretend to be your brother, and steal the birthright. Uh, Of course, he does. Jacob goes. He dresses up like his brother, wears his brother's clothes so he'll smell like his brother, pretends to be his brother, and steals the blessing. When Esau finds out, Esau says, I'm going to kill you. And um, Rebekah says, Jacob, you need to get out of town. I'll send word to you when it's safe. Now, What we didn't realize at the time is that Rebekah died. Jacob left. He went to his uncle Laban, and he married. He intended to marry his daughter. He fell in love with Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel. 
And he said, I will work for you as a slave for seven years if I can just marry your daughter. Of course, you remember at the end of the seven years, uh, Laban got Jacob drunk at the wedding and had him marry the wrong sister. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you'll work for seven more years, you can have Rachel too. Then he worked for six more years in exchange to have some money to live on. So Jacob has now been gone for 20 years, has not heard anything from his mother, doesn't realize she's dead. And as far as he knows, Esau is still waiting, plotting to kill him. Now, meanwhile, Jacob decided to leave. Laban's oppressing him. He knows things are getting dangerous there. And two weeks ago, when we left our, I hate to say heroes, I don't have any words for them. When we left the people that God is going to use somehow, Laban and Jacob had put stones between them and had said, I won't cross this way, you won't cross that way. God, keep watch between the two of us. So, take position at this point. He has got Laban behind him, and he can't go back that way, or Laban will kill him. In front of him, he's got Esau, the brother that he stole his birthright from. You know, you're talking about being between a rock and a hard place. Which way is Jacob going to go? Well, as we come here to Genesis 32, he's decided he doesn't have anywhere to go except back to Esau. He can't can't go backwards. He's got to go forward and take it for the best. So as we read in Genesis chapter 32, verse 1, it says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of the place Manaheim. And uh, that means two armies. So he comes up and Jacob is left and he sees these two armies of angels. Now, of course, God sent him these two armies of angels to show him that he was with him. You remember, of course, that uh, when we saw Jacob's ladder at Bethel, that the angels of God were ascending and descending. And so he comes and he gives Jacob this vision of the two armies of angels with him to give him confidence. But unfortunately, it doesn't uh, strengthen Jacob. You know, in Hamlet, Hamlet says, uh, conscience doth make cowards of us all. He might have been brave, but he knows he's done wrong and he knows there's some consequences coming to him. And oftentimes, no matter what God has shown us, no matter what God has done for us in the past, our trust of God is never bigger than our circumstances. And so he sees these two armies of angels, and then he goes on with his plan. (laughs) And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and women servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. So he gets his, a couple of his servants to go forward, kind of an advance party. And he says, I want you to tell Esau that I've been with Laban, and now I've got lots of things, and I'm coming to find grace. I'm coming to find forgiveness. He says, I just want some mercy. So he sends his messengers out. They come. They go out, they see Esau, they pass this message along. And in verse 6 we see, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. So Jacob sends messengers ahead, 
The messengers come back and say, we found Esau, and all we know is that he's coming this way with 400 men. I mean, you're Jacob, you start to get a little nervous. You know, you start to reevaluate your options. You've got Laban behind, it, behind you and Esau with 400 men coming in front of you. So what do you do? Well, it says in uh, verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Seven where you say, duh, right? You would be too. Somebody said, your brother that you betrayed is coming at you with 400 trained soldiers. And he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands and said, if Esau come uh, to the one, the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. He says, all right, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to split everybody that's with me into two groups. That way, if Esau gets one, the other group will be able to escape. Um, what, we have, what we don't read in this chapter that we find out in the next chapter is that when he sets this up, he puts Leah and her kids with one band and Rachel and her kids with the other band and says, okay, Leah's group, you get in front. Okay. So he splits his two wives up. He puts his favorite wife in the back and uh, says, you know, when he's going after Leah, you make a run for it. You know, so Jacob, like I said, is not a hero. So as Jacob comes in here, he's now got himself set up in all that he has. And in verse 9, we come to something that's really interesting. We have been following the life of Jacob here for, goodness, uh, really nine chapters. And so far, he has not prayed. A single time. But Jacob's a lot like a lot of us sometimes. Uh, now things have gotten really desperate. He doesn't have anything else to do except pray. Yeah, oftentimes we treat prayer like that, don't we? We say, well, I'm out of options. I might as well pray. What can it hurt? The, and so, it, to his credit, when Jacob finally does pray, it's a good prayer. But he may have saved himself a lot of heartache if he had tried this 20 years earlier. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. We've talked about, as we've gone through the life of Jacob, how he can never call God his God. How he has to say, the God of my father, the God of my grandfather. Saying, the God that said to me, Return to thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee, is the most personal that he has gotten to taking God as his God. But he looks at it and he says, you know, the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, the Lord that's reached out to me already. The first thing that we always have to do in prayer, you know, I, rec I recommend in prayer, there's a couple different models, but one really good one is ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, first you pray and you recognize who God is. And if you don't recognize who God is, then your whole prayer is out of whack. You know? Then confession. Confession, A-C. Confession, you have to confess your sins. If you're holding on to sin, the Bible says that the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear deafened that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from your God. Your, when you don't recognize your sin, then you can't come to God. Then T, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You thank God for the things he's already done. And what, what do these three do? Well, 
Adoration makes us see the size of our God instead of the size of our problem. Confession makes us realize how desperately we need God. We throw ourselves on his mercy. Thanksgiving helps us to remember what God has already done. Because God is never asking us to trust him to do anything he has not done before. And then, of course, the S is supplication, request. Asking God to supply your needs, supplication. And then, so, when we pray, we come to God and we say, God, you are so great. I am so sinful. Thank you for the ways that you've delivered me in the past. Now will you. And it, it doesn't always have to be in that order. I find it helpful to pray in that order so I can keep track of myself. But th- there's a couple different ways, but that, that one's a good one. So he comes out here, and he really does. He begins with adoration. He says, you're the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, the God that reached out to me. There's a Gaither vocal band song that says, he came down to our level when we couldn't get up to his. <laughs> you're the God that reached down to me. I adore you. I praise you. And then he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve the least of the mercies that you've given me. I don't deserve the least of the things that you've told me. I don't deserve anything. You know, we've got to get to that point. We've got to get to the point where we say, God, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. We've got to get to that point where we say, God, I don't have anything to bring you I don't deserve anything. That's confession, you know, at its deepest level. You say, well, shouldn't he be specific? Don't you always tell us when we pray for confession, we need to be specific? Hey, you do. You need to pray, you know, Lord, I've done this, and I'm sorry. This is really strange. I don't know. When I was in elementary school, like second grade, they taught us how to apologize. And um, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, you ever listened to somebody apologize? I'm sorry. That's, what do you mean? Um, and they made us do the Boys Town apologies. I don't know if anybody else ever had to learn to apologize like that. I had to say, I'm sorry for, it, next time I will, do you accept my apology? If we didn't say it like that, it didn't count. Uh, in the second grade, if you just said, I'm sorry, then Miss Wilson would send us out into the hallway to work on our Boys Town apology uh, until we could apologize correctly. And uh, sometimes it gets me in trouble with people because I don't, you know, I think if somebody's going to apologize, that's how it ought to be. I'm sorry that I, next time I will, do you accept my apology? Um, and that's how we should apologize to God. <laughs> Lord, I'm sorry that I was proud and self-sufficient. Next time, I beg for your strength to lean on you. You know, <laughs> do you accept my apology? The, the, but here, there's a couple different things. One, Jacob is still not full grown. Jacob is praying, but as we're about to see, he has not really been given over to God. Two, uh, the Bible does not necessarily record every single word that Jacob said. He may have been more specific than we know. You know, at the end of John, it says that uh, Jesus did more things that are written here. If you wrote everything down that he did, the books in all the world couldn't hold them. The Bible doesn't say literally every word that was spoken. So he may have been more specific. But what we see here is the basic part of it is he admits his unworthiness. And that's the way we all have to come to God. Then what does he say? He says, for with my staff, I passed over this Jordan and now I am become two bands. Thanksgiving. He says, Lord, the first time I passed over the Jordan River, I had, it was me and my staff. 
and now there's two companies. Before it was just the two of us, my staff and I, and now it's the whole, two whole armies. That's his thanksgiving, recognizing what God has already done. When I was working on this, I asked Colleen if she thought this would be an appropriate place to break into the Sammy Davis Jr. song, Me and My Shadow. She said no. So don't say I never listened to her. So he comes across with nothing, and he says, Lord, look how far you've brought me. Thanksgiving. And then, of course, supplication. You know, there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. It recognizes that we need things from God. Sometimes we're too proud to ask God for things. But we need to realize that whatever we have comes from him. So he says, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And he comes and he says, Lord, please deliver me from my brother. Rescue me because I'm afraid. When was the last time you prayed to God like that? You said, Lord, take care of the situation because I am scared. He's going to come and smite me and the mother with the children. And then he does something that's useful to do in prayer also. He quotes God to God. He said, God, you remember when you said this? And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He said, God, you made this promise to me, and now I'm counting on you to do it. Got it. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So it comes along now. You say, well, look at that. Jacob is a changed man. If only, if only, woodpecker side. He comes and he prays, and that's a big step. But then let's see what he does. He lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother. 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats. 200 ewes, which are sheep and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their colts, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 fowls. But here's what he does. He gets five groups of animals, 200 goats, and, well, 220 goats, male and female, and he sends them, 220 sheep, and then he sends them, 30 calves, and he sends them, and so on. He sends out waves of animals. And what's he doing? Well, let's read just a little further. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove. He says, Go out ahead of me and space yourselves out. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau my brother meeteth thee and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou and whither goest thou and whose art thou before those before thee? Thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my Lord Esau. And behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. Now what does he do? He gets, he has the 220 goats go forward with the messenger. And he says, when you get to Esau and Esau says, who are you? What's going on? Say, this is a present from my Lord Esau, from, my, from your servant Jacob to his Lord Esau. Jacob's coming behind us. And then there, a little while later, there's another wave of animals. He says, who are you? These are a present to my Lord Esau from his servant Jacob. 
Please, take them. Jacob's coming behind us. And then a third wave. And then a space. And then a fourth wave. And then a fifth wave. See, Jacob is not called con man for nothing. He's going to butter his brother up. And sometimes don't we try to do that? Don't we try to take things in waves? We say, all right, Lord, please rescue me just in case, you know, my plan doesn't work. I need a safety net. Now, let me start scheming. And so Jacob sends wave after wave after wave of favor. He thinks he's going to buy his way to Esau. Now, Jacob has stolen Esau's third of the inheritance and stolen his blessing. Now, if you were him, if you were Esau, you might look at this and say, the gifts you're sending me are nothing close to what you have stolen from me. And I said I was going to kill you, and now I'm going to do it. I've got 400 men, and how about I kill you and keep all this stuff? And what would your attitude be? What would your response be at this point? But Jacob realizes he can't go back. The only thing he can go is forward. And so he says, I'm going to, you know, the book of Proverbs says, the gift makes room for the man. I'm going to send forward my gifts to try to grease the wheels a little bit. I'm going to do everything that I can. So he does. And then in uh, the verse 20, I'm, I'm sorry, we lost my place. And say ye moreover, behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Peradventure, he will accept of me. It says, he's going to get buttered up with the gifts. And then when I see him, at least I've got a chance. So, he went, so went the present over before him and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Here's what you now imagine. Before sunset, Jacob had sent in five waves huge monetary gifts. Then he, in that night, he crosses over and he puts the two camps with his wives and his family in them. And then he goes back to the other side of the river Jabbok alone. And he, now everything he has is on Esau's side of the river and Jacob is there by himself. I read, uh, I think that uh, Jim Boyce did this the best, explained this. Um, Jacob may have been like a lot of us in church. Um, you come to the end of the service and you sing, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. But really what Esau was saying is he said, I surrender all the sheep. I surrender all the goats. I surrender all my family. I surrender all. You look to God and you say, God, I surrender all my money. I surrender all my time. I surrender all my family. I surrender all. But what you're really surrendering is all of your stuff. And God says, you are not surrendering the one thing I want, which is you. 
Jacob surrenders his material possessions. He surrenders his wife. He surrenders his children. He surrenders his dignity. But finally, Jacob will not give up Jacob. You come to God, and you can give God your money. You can give God your time. You can give God your energy. You can give God everything you have without giving him your heart. Jesus said, many will say unto me in that last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't, didn't we cast out demons and perform many marvelous works in thy name? And I'll say unto them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. See, God says, I want one thing, and I surrender all the goats doesn't cut it. I surrender all the sheep doesn't cut it. I surrender all the tithes doesn't cut it. I surrender an hour on Sunday morning doesn't cut it. God says, I want your heart. And so that's the question. How many of you are like Jacob? Everything you've got is on the other side of the river, but you're still here, firmly planted. You've prayed, you've made good lip service, but you're still scheming. You're still holding yourself back. Never be satisfied as long as you're holding yourself back. God will never be satisfied. And if God has to come and take it by force, he will. What does it say? It says, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. You say, what? What What does that have to do with anything? He, He was by himself, and then suddenly he was wrestling with someone until daybreak. What's going on here? Well, let's read a little more. So he's coming. He's by himself. He's all alone. And he's being, he's wrestling. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So from the middle of the night on until sunrise, Jacob is wrestling with this man. And it seems like the man is losing. And then at once, the man comes, and uh, the word usually means with his finger. With his finger, touches Jacob's thigh and knocks it out of joint. He's, he's, what is this? Who is this? Who is this that struggles with him and struggles with him, but then when it comes time to cripple him, does it with a touch? And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. What's really interesting here is that he uses a lot of pronouns, and it doesn't tell you who's speaking. You know, in verse 25, we don't know uh, who's winning until the end of the verse. It just says, when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. You don't realize who's winning until there it is, that the hollow of his thigh is out of joint. Now, in the next verse, in verse uh, 25, who's asking for, uh, verse 26, I'm sorry, Who's asking for a blessing from who? You know, the Bible says that the greater blesses the lesser. Who's asking for whose blessing? Say, is it the one that's been wrestling all night and losing that asks for a blessing? Or is it the one, or is it Jacob asking for a blessing? And he said, and uh, he said, let me go for the day breaketh. Let me go sun rising. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. So let me try to put this scene in mind to you. Jacob sent everything he has on ahead. He's now by himself. And he begins to, someone comes up to him and starts fighting him. They fight until the dawn. And then as the dawn comes, the man Jacob's wrestling with touches his hip and knocks it out of socket. And he says, let me go, 
Let go of me. Quit holding on to me. Quit, quit grabbing on to me because the sunrise is coming. And we'll get to that. What does that have to do with anything in a second? He knocks it out of joint. And so he says, Jacob is crippled. He can't fight anymore, but he can just hold on. And he says, I will not let thee go. Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He says, what's your name? My name is Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Let me read the next two verses, and then we're going to come back. He says, And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And what do we have here? You know, the Bible says no man has seen God at any time, but the Son has revealed him. Let me retell the story to you now, now that we know who the main characters are. Jacob is sent on everything ahead. Jesus, in a pre-incarnate appearance. You remember, Jesus has always existed. He's eternal God. He was born in Bethlehem and took on human flesh. But he appears from time to time in the Old Testament by the name the Angel of the Lord. In this case, he comes down and he wrestles with Jacob. And they're a stalemate until Jesus comes and delivers the defeating blow, knocks his hip out of joint. Jacob's helpless. And, you know, your hip is kind of euphemistic for your reproductive organs. So it refers, you know, it talks about the thigh of Jacob being from where all the nations of Israel have come. So when an Israelite reads this, it's a, you know, all of them have been struck here by God, wrestling on the ground on the other side of the river Jabbok. I don't know, I wish that we... I wish everybody spoke Hebrew, because the story is actually really interesting in Hebrew. Uh, Jacob is Yaakov in Hebrew. Yaakov, uh, the word for struggle is Abak, and it's the river Jabbok, Yabbok. So Yaakov, Abak, at the river Yabbok. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 all, it's all showing you this struggle here. And, of course, this is the river that divides the promised land from the Canaanite land. So it's kind of a shadowy place. It's the Transjordan region. It's part holy, part profane. And so that's really what Jacob is, isn't he? He's kind of the border. He's God's man, but he doesn't act like it. God's called him, and God loves him, and he's God's child, but he fights against God all the time. He's in the shadows. And then you say, look, the sun's coming up. Why does God do this when the sun's coming up? Because in Jacob's life, it's twilight. Half dark, half light. And so when he says, let me go for the day is breaking, Jesus is saying, you need to make up your mind now. If you're going to let go of me, you need to do it now because the sun's coming up. You cannot live this halfway character anymore. In, uh, Exit, in Ezekiel, no, sorry, 1 Kings 18, Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then serve him, but if fall, then serve him. Jacob has been living a halfway life. And Jesus comes down and physically fights with him to spiritually break him and say, look, you need to cross this river. You need to be completely on my side. You need to walk in the daylight. You need to get out of the shadows. And then, how does he get there? Jesus says to Jacob, what's your name? 
You say, well, that's a strange thing to ask. But you have to remember, in the Hebrew culture, in the Semitic cultures in general, your name was not just a word. You know, Shakespeare said, shall I rose by any other name still smells sweet. Your, your name in Hebrew is who you are. So Jacob says, the, Jesus says to him, who are you? He says, I'm a con man. I'm a trickster. And God says, not anymore. Your name will now be called Israel. Ruled by God. Because you've struggled with me. You've struggled with men. You've struggled with me and you've prevailed. You'll no longer be the trickster. You'll be the one that is ruled by God. And so... He comes here. You have power with God and with men and has prevailed. You've struggled. That's what that word power is. Struggled with God and men. And you've been victorious. But I want you to look at something. How was Jacob victorious? He did not out-wrestle Jesus. He just held on. He said, let me go. The day's breaking. And Jacob said, I won't let you go. And that's when he won. Right, so let me try to, there's a lot of information there. But let me try to pull this all together to you, for you. Tell you how this is you. You, many of you, are Christians. You know, you're children of God. You don't live like it. You're what Paul calls carnal. You do what you want and then just hope that God's going to sort it all out in the end. You know, you may talk a good game. But when it really comes down to it, you're trying to work it from your side too. God has come to you and he said, look, I need you to surrender. You're in a rock and a hard place. You're between a rock and a hard place. You're in trouble. I need you to surrender yourself to me. And you say, I surrender all the goats. I surrender all the sheep. And you give everything that you have left, but you're holding out yourself. God says, I'm going to come and get your attention. You say, why did Jesus come and actually wrestle with Jacob? He needed to get Jacob the way that Jacob would understand. I don't know how God gets to you. It may be you wake up one morning and your finances are not what they were. Your job's not what it was. Your family's not what it was. Somehow God comes down and knocks your hip out of joint. And then you can't do anything but hold on. God says, who are you? You say, I'm a sinner. I'm helpless. But I'm not going to let go. I imagine many of you are at that point today where you have been You've sent over everything you have to the other side of the river struggle. You've given up all of your stuff. But here you are. And God says, I want to get your attention. You knock your hip out of joint, I'm going to do whatever it takes until you surrender you. Until you say, Lord, I'm holding on to you. God's saying to you right now, let go of me for the day's breaking. Let go. If you're going to let go of me, do it now, because the sun's coming up. You can't stay in this twilight any longer. You need to decide. Are you going to cross over into the land that's holy, or are you going to stay here in the land that's profane? Where are you going to go? Said your name shall be called no more Jacob. God wants to say that to you. You know, God says, uh, he says in Isaiah, no more shall your land be called desolate, but it will be called Beulah, it'll be called married. God says, no longer do, Jesus said in the passage we studied last week, No longer do I call you slaves, but friends. God says, I don't want to call you my enemy anymore. I want to call you my child. If you hold on, there's no longer will you be a sinner just squeaking by, but you'll be a saint. You'll be changed. If you'll just hold on, 
And so as we read, as Jacob said to him, tell me, I pray thee thy name. Tell me who you are. He said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? He says, why do you want to know my name? Why do you want to know me? That's a great question. A lot of us come to God wanting to know what he can do for us. Say, who are you? Are you my financial provider? Are you my uh, physical healer? Are you my... We need to understand having the right motives. You remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus said, why callest thou me good? Later on, Jesus appears in the book of Judges, and he says, why do you ask my name, saying that it is wonderful? And he blessed him there. This was a blessing that he couldn't steal, he couldn't cheat. You know, you may be able to get the blessings of people by being dishonest or smart or whatever. But if you want the blessing of God, the only way to get it is by holding on. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, means the face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. As the sun comes up, Jacob crosses the river limping. I read one commentator a, a while ago. said that, you know, sometimes people read this, and they said, why does Jacob limp? You know, why, why is it that he's permanently marked? And I think a very good answer is that uh, anybody who has been actually touched by God cannot leave unchanged. Anybody that's actually wrestled with God, been brought to the ground, once God's got your attention, it changes, and you bear that mark for the rest of your life. So Jacob walks across with a limp, a sign that he's weak, and he needs to rely on the strength of God. So he's gone all night looking to get strong enough, looking to get what he needed to defeat Esau, and he leaves physically weaker than he was before. But because he's now governed by God, ruled by God, Israel, he's now going to have the victory. We, won't, we don't have time to read it, but of course, Jacob crosses the river and goes to Esau. And Esau wraps his arms around him and says, I don't want your gifts. And Esau's heart has been touched in a way that Jacob never could have. God had touched Esau's heart long before. The Bible says that God answers our prayers before we pray them. God knows what you're going to pray. And some things you're praying about, some things you're working on, you say, oh, it's too late for this to work out. God has already been working out the solution and is just waiting to give it to you until you let him knock your leg out of joint. Now, verse 32, therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. This is uh, kind of tangential, but let me point it out to you anyway. The Hebrews didn't eat the sciatic nerve area. And the reason for that is because not eating it served as a reminder of the place that God touched. You know, sometimes people say, well, how can you be a Christian? You don't do that. You eat pork and shrimp and everything else, you know. The Old Testament food laws were pointers to the encounters they'd had with God. And the reason that Jesus did away with the Old Testament is because it was never designed to save. 
It was designed to remind. That was the purpose of the holidays. You know, they had Passover, where they slaughtered the lambs over and over again. Did, those, did the blood of that lambs, did the blood of those lambs take away sin? Never. But it reminded the people of what they needed. You know, we have, uh, we, we have different holidays throughout the year, Christmas and Easter and different things. Those, are those necessary? No, they're not. They're, but they're signs, they're pointers to remind us of the fact of what Jesus came and what he did. So as we bring this whole account together, if I may, Jacob, the supplanter, the trickster, has finally been caught between two of his own schemes. Why does Laban hate him? Well, because he tricked Laban, or he tried to. Why does Esau hate him? Well, because he tricked Esau. You know, you, you may be able to get away in your own scheming for a while, but ultimately the consequences come up. You may, you may have worked out some kind of scheme, but ultimately there's somebody who's smarter than you. There's somebody who's slicker than you. you know, people talk about sowing their wild oats, but eventually those oats grow up. Eventually you've got to harvest those wild oats, and that's what Jacob's day comes to. So he comes with a, between a rock and a hard place, and he says, I'm going to get my way out of this one too. But let me tell you, the way that you got into your problem is not the way to get out of it. How'd you get into your mess? By trying to do everything yourself your way. Is that how you're going to get out of it? You know, if you find yourself uh, digging a hole and now you're knee-deep in water, you know the first thing to do? Stop digging. You say, well, I'm going to fight this myself. If fighting this yourself has got you into it, fighting it's not going to get you out of it. You know, you guys are familiar with uh, the fable of the tar baby, right? The, the doll that's made out of tar. You fight with it. The more you fight with it, what happens? The more you get caught up in it. And so you've got to try a different route. So some of you, your whole life, you know, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not, but your life has been fighting like that. And the harder you keep doing what you've been doing, the worse it gets. I think I've used this illustration before, but um, when we go to a uh, Mexican restaurant, uh, my mom... for speaking Spanish. Okay, so they come up, and they don't understand what she's saying. And she says, I, can I have a taco, please? Can I have a taco, please? <laughs> Let me tell you something. English louder is not Spanish. Everybody got that. English louder is not Spanish. Doing the wrong thing more does not become the right thing. You say... Oh, I'm going to do this by myself. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to think my way out of this situation. I'm going to work my way out of this situation. And it's not working. So what do you do? You say, I'm going to rule harder. I'm going to work my way out of this situation. I'm going to get myself out of this mess. Let me tell you, your, wrong, your mistakes louder do not become the right thing. Say, I've got to try something different. So Jacob's tried sending everything he has over. He surrendered all the goats. He surrendered all the sheep. You've surrendered all this, all that, all whatever. But God says, I want you. And he will wrestle you to the ground if he has to. But he wants to be able to look you in the eye and say, no longer will you be called sinner. No longer will you be called forsaken. No longer will you be called desolate. Because I have changed you. This morning, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You've never really been saved. You know, you raise your hand or repeat a prayer or whatever. But God's never really changed your heart. Now's the time to get right with him. Maybe you are a Christian. You've been living this kind of halfway life, kind of in the shadows, back and forth and back and forth, you know, jumping between two horses. 
but eventually they're going to split and go different directions. And God says, let me go for the day's breaking. If you're going to let me go, you do it now. But if you're going to hold on tight until I bless you, you hold on tight. So the question for you this morning, Christian, is are you willing to give up being carnal? Are you willing to be, get, quit giving up everything that God is asking for except yourself? God says, I want you. I want all of you, and I want you now. As we stand and our musicians come forward, they give you an opportunity to say, Lord Jesus, I know you died for me. I know you gave all you had to me, and now I want to give everything that I am to you. Page 392. 392.